Now we're only going to be looking at two particular verses in Philippians today, just the first two verses. And if you're thinking, goodness me, that's 35 minutes on a greeting. Well, I've just spent the whole week on this, so bear with me. Now, I wonder, when you wake up in the morning and you're stood in front of the mirror, putting on your makeup, checking your hair, shaving perhaps, you know, something I only do every three or four days or so, but I know some other guys are less fortunate than me. When you're doing those things in the mirror, who do you see? Do you see a husband, a wife, child, a single person, a mom, a dad, um, a bank manager, an IT person that nobody else understands, um, a supermarket shelf stacker, a teacher, a student? You know, who do you see? You know, truth be told, for most of us, when we look in the mirror, we see lots of things, don't we? We are all those things almost. We're many things. I'm a father, a husband, uh, I'm a child, I'm a student at a seminary, I'm a friend, uh, an, an ex-missionary. The list kind of goes on and on and on. And the fact of the matter is that so often, you know, these things that I see in the mirror, these things that I identify as, they conflict. I'm a father, and I'm a seminarian, and I'm a husband. So when I'm sat at my desk, desperately trying to study, and I hear my son running amok in the next room, and there's just thumping everywhere, there's tantrum, and my wife is struggling with him. What do I do? You know, as a seminarian, surely I just stay right at my desk. As a father, you know, I just, I just want to go and you know, talk to my son. As a husband, I want to go smack my son for being such a pain to my wife. But obviously, I shouldn't do that. The point is, with all these conflicting identities, we find it really hard to make decisions, don't we? We find it, and everything kind of becomes more complicated than it needs to be. And life is difficult as a result. But thankfully, the Bible tells us that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation, our primary identity is always a Christian. Which means that no matter what else you are, no matter what else you might be, you are always a Christian first. I'm a husband. No, no, I'm a Christian husband. I'm a mother. No, no, you're a Christian mother. I'm a single person. No, you're a Christian single person. I'm a lawyer. No, you are a Christian lawyer. Now, the meaning of being a Christian is far richer than any 35 to 40 minute sermon can exhaust. But today, we're simply going to focus on three things, three particular things that Paul wanted the Philippians to think about as he writes this letter. And we're going to see those three things. The first thing, then, is that Christians are saints. The second thing is that Christians are servants. And the third thing is Christians are the recipient, no, sorry, Christians are the subject of God's grace and peace. That third S took me forever. 
Firstly then, Christians are saints. Now, do you see that in the first, in the second part of verse one? Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing that Paul wants to remind us today of who we are. Now, in our own cultural context, we tend to think of saints as just really good, nice, moral people, don't we? You know, people that just do good things. Mother Teresa, what a saint. Nelson Mandela, well, depending on your viewpoint, what a saint. Gandhi, again, what a saint. And sometimes, actually, we use the word quite flippantly. You know, somebody just brings in donuts for the office, and we're like, ah, what a saint. Somebody gives up their seat for a pregnant lady on the tube. Oh, what a saint. All that to say that we have really lost the meaning of that word in our culture. In the Bible, though, saints aren't just good people. They're, just, they're not just good moral people. No, they ought to be good. They ought to be moral. But they're not just nice, good, moral people. In the Bible, saints are the holy ones of God. In other words, saints are a particular group of people whom God has set aside for himself. And so actually, the most fundamental way of defining a saint is through their relationship with God rather than through their actions. So whilst saints or the holy ones of God ought to be those who are good and moral people because they believe and trust and belong to a good and moral God, Their goodness and their morality flows out of the fact that they have been particularly set apart by God for himself. Now, if this is your first time hearing anything like this, you know, one question must just pop out at you, mustn't it? That's not fair. You know, how could God set apart some people for him and not others? Why should a particular group of people enjoy a special relationship with God whilst others are left out of this special club? Isn't that just favoritism? Now, there's a couple of things to say to that. Firstly, the membership to the club is, is, well, it's not very exclusive at all. The Christian club, if you want to think of it that way, is not like some exclusive country club. Or some weird back alley social club where you need bizarre headwear and a special handshake to get in. No, no. Membership in the club for Christians is wide open to all. It doesn't matter if you're same or opposite sex attracted. It doesn't matter if you feel cis or transgendered. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, highly educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're 80 or a few months old. It doesn't matter if you come from Korea, Brazil, Taiwan in my case, or the UK. None of that matters. Membership to be a Christian, to be a part of this family, this club, is wide open to everybody. And if you want to join, you're very welcome. We'd love to have you. And we'll talk about how that happens in a few minutes. The second thing to say then is that because the invitation goes out to all, all are welcome. If you're not part of the club, then actually, that's on you. That's your responsibility. 
It's hardly fair if you don't want to join to turn around and accuse God of favoritism. It doesn't work that way. Now, how does it happen that God could set apart a special group of people to himself? Is it because of anything inherently special about those people? No. He does so based on what he has accomplished through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that in verse 2 there? We're saints in Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus. As we believe in him, we are united to him in faith. As we believe in the eternal son of God who became man, the perfect life that he led, his undeserved death on the cross, his resurrection, which gives us hope for the resurrection to eternal life. As we believe in all those things, as we trust in him, we are joined to him. And it is in him that we are saints. Being a saint, then, is all about what Jesus has done and our faith in him. Now, does being set apart as a special people by God mean that we are no longer part of the world that we're living in? By no means. We're still geographically located in the world. Do you see those last few words in verse 1? We are saints in Christ Jesus and for, the, for, the, for these people at Philippi. Paul was concerned to talk to these Christians in their own context. And actually, Paul does this a lot, doesn't he? If you know your, your New Testament as you read through, you know that every time Paul writes, he writes to a particular group of people or an individual and addressing their own particular needs and their time and their context. So every Christian then, every saint, is a saint in a particular time and space. And we've all got particular needs and challenges. And that's why Paul does this. That's why Paul wrote several different letters to several different congregations and individuals, applying scriptural truth and wisdom to their particular situation. So as we read scripture then, it's simply not enough to just read it and understand it. We must be thinking through how it applies to our particular circumstances. And you know what? Sometimes that's really difficult. Sometimes it's really difficult to know what is the most biblically faithful and contextually appropriate course of action. And that's why God has appointed elders and deacons, or rather over deacons for the church. So that through the worship of God, through regular preaching of the word, sound doctrinal teaching, and biblically faithful counseling, saints can be equipped to be saints in their own particular context. And you know what my guess is that in the church in Philippi, they particularly struggled to listen to their elders. This letter to the Philippians is the only letter where the greeting to the church includes a mention of the overseers and deacons. Paul particularly wanted to flag up this, um, the, these two groups of people to them. And my guess is, is that Paul is subtly and gently reminding them that they are saints who have been placed under the care of elders and deacons 
because the congregation has come under the influence of some false teachers who have infiltrated the church by impressing them with their worldliness and gifting rather than their faithfulness and the preaching of the truth. And actually, this is, you know, I'm not saying this is like immediately applicable to us all now, but actually, for Christians today, this is very applicable, isn't it? You know, how many of us, how many Christians ignore their local church? How many Christians think they can survive on a steady diet of internet sermons? Now, those things are good. You know, I listen to guys from abroad and you know, other places in the UK all the time. But that cannot replace good, godly leadership of the local church who can come alongside you, who knows you, and who can speak to your life directly. God has deliberately placed us in these communities, in our contexts, and with these overseers and deacons over us, that we may grow to be saints. So what is your identity as a Christian then? You are a saint. You're a saint in London. Not only that, you're a saint at London City Presbyterian Church under the spiritual oversight of Andy and the rest of the elders. Be that saint. The second thing then that should form our identity as a Christian is that we're servants of Christ. Now do you see that in verse 1? Paul refers to himself at the beginning of this letter and he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, this word servant tends to conjure up scenes of the English aristocracy, doesn't it? Where the rich employs a butler, a driver, a cook, a housemaid. You know, those kind of servants. An employee of the wealthy. That's not really the kind of servant that Paul's talking about here. He's not sort of Jesus' manservant. He's not Jesus' Jeeves doing his ironing and cooking and his meals and things. No, being a servant of Jesus means someone who does the work of Jesus. And he goes on to tell us in the rest of the letter what that work looks like. And for Paul, doing the work of Jesus means advancing the cause of the gospel. You know, this doesn't mean that all of us have to be in full-time ministry, because when we go down to verses 4 and 5, we'll see that, um, because in your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now... so. We don't all have to be involved in the same way like Paul was, but there's some, there's some sense in which we should be involved in partnering with um, people who are doing the frontline gospel work. We can all be involved, but not necessarily all in the same way, and not necessarily all on the front line. And basically, it kind of comes down to gifting and opportunity. Now, you know, I, I happen to be given a bit of a gift of the gab. So, you know, we, we, I'm able to talk to people. And that kind of makes sort of word ministry a little bit easier for me. And it kind of makes sense. Now, there are plenty of guys out there who are wiser than me, but who may not be quite so able to speak. And that's fine. You know, as God gives them opportunities, as God gives them um people to speak to. I'm sure they will. But actually, you know, speaking in front of 
a hundred odd people. That's terrifying for most people. But for whatever reason, that's not been a reason, that, that's not been a problem for me. And that's why I'm able to do this. But actually, each and every one of us, as we go out into the world, as we all given opportunities to share the gospel with people, we can do. And even if we're not gifted in terms of you know, apologetics or any of those other things, we are still able to partner with the, the, the people who are. To say, well, why don't you come to church? Or why don't I introduce you to a friend of mine who, you know, really understands about um, evolution and why we might disagree with it, or why we might agree with it, but from a scriptural point of view. Or, you know, here's my friend who understands about art from a Christian perspective. Why don't you talk to him about it? You know, we, we, all of us have deficiencies in this area. Like, I'm terrible at singing. You know, just as we were coming in, I was saying how, you know, there's no way I should switch on this microphone until I'm actually preaching because that's just embarrassing for me. You know, all of us are gifted differently. And as God gives us opportunity and gift, we are to be involved in the gospel work of furthering God's kingdom. Now, being a servant of Christ also means serving like Christ. And that's why we read from Mark 10, 17 to 45 earlier. Jesus came to earth not to be served, but to serve. Or to use the other words from later on in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. For Christians then, our lives should be marked by a desire to serve one another, Counting others more significant than ourselves. Not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others because of the way Jesus has acted. And actually, we see Paul himself, again, really quite subtly modeling this for us in this passage. This is the only greeting of all his letters where he refers to himself only as a servant. In all the other letters, if servants are mentioned, if, if he thinks of him, if he refers to himself as a servant, it's always an apostle and a servant. But here, he only refers to himself as a servant. He, he wants to flag this up to us. This is who he is. Now, if Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus, who saw Jesus in a vision, who is one of the mightiest teachers, if not the mightiest teacher, the, 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 the church has ever seen, apart from Jesus, 
You know, if he's responsible for this letter and so many others, if he's the, the amazing cross-cultural missionary who went all across Europe and a load of Asia, you know, the missionary to the Gentiles, if he refers to himself as a servant, how much more then are we supposed to think of ourselves as servants to one another? But not only that, he lists Timothy as a fellow servant of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, the, the, I think the, the, word, the use of the word servant here is, is dominated by the idea of serving one another. But actually something else in the background that, that has to play into this is that in the Greek Old Testament, th- this idea of the servant of the Lord is continuously a, a high office. You know, it, it's used to refer to those who serve the Lord full time. And, you know, it, it's a prophet, it's a prophetic or a priestly office. And again, this is the only letter where he names somebody else alongside himself to, to take up this title of the servant of Jesus Christ. And remember that Timothy was a younger man. You know, he, he, he was a Christian baby when, when Paul first sort of got hold of him and then, and then took him on mission with him. But here, in this letter, Paul, the much older, experienced missionary, says, Timothy is my fellow servant in Christ Jesus. I mean, that, that is humility from Paul, isn't it? He's able to, to, to say that about a much younger man. Now, when you go home and you look in the mirror, who are you going to see? I hope you see a servant, one who does the work of Christ and one who serves like him. Now, the third thing that marks us out as Christians is the fact that we are subjects of grace and peace from God. We see that in verse 2, don't we? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've already kind of touched on what it means to have received grace from God. To have received grace from God means to have had our sins forgiven. Because, actually, God, he's the creator of the whole world. He owns everything, and he owes us nothing. And yet, people continuously rebel against him. We sin against him. And so, what we deserve is his righteous wrath, rather than mercy. And yet, in his grace... In his grace, he gives us his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross so that our sins can be cleansed and forgiven, so that we can come to him. That is grace. And because we have received this grace from him, we can have peace with God. There is peace between us and him. 
But not only that, there is peace between us and all the other people who have received peace from God too. Because in Jesus, as we are joined to him in faith, we are also one another. And you know, as we read through Philippians 1, wasn't it really interesting when Paul started talking about the people who were preaching the gospel out of envy, out of rivalry? What, what was his response to that? I praise God because the gospel is being advanced. I mean, that, that, that's amazing grace and peace from Paul, isn't it? People are preaching out of envy and rivalry. Now, our natural instinct is to say, God, that, that's unworthy preaching. Do not honor that. And yet Paul's response is gracious and peaceable. I wonder if we think the same way. You know, and church life is so often full of politics. You know, sometimes quite accidentally, isn't it? You know, that some people can, I don't know, at church lunch, cook that one dish that we really would prefer to cook, and we think that we cook better than they do. You know, do we thank God that somebody else has taken that from us, or are we slightly bitter about it? I think everybody can come up with probably slightly more suitable examples than that. But the interesting thing as well is for the rest of the letter, we see not only peace between God and man and between man and man, we see peace in the person of Paul. That in all kinds of circumstances, we see Paul being at peace. Throughout his imprisonment, he's at peace. Throughout his suffering, he's at peace. And even when he, well, we show, we're shown like this, that people are preaching the gospel through rivalry and envy. And clearly there's some kind of defamation going on as we read through the rest of the Bible. Through his loss of status, Paul was still able to maintain peace. That is something very rare in our society these days. Something very, very rare in our society these days. Now, before I started seminary, before I started, before I worked as a missionary even, you know, I, I had a, I had work in, in an office. And, you know, for, because we worked in a very small sector of the industry, I ended up being invited to some swanky dinners at some big hotels. And one of the things that I noticed as I sort of rubbed shoulders amongst these giants of industry, well, giants in, in our industry, was that nobody had peace. You know, they drove the Mercedes, they had the big houses, they had, you know, all the stuff that they had ever wanted. And yet they had no peace. When we went to have dinner together, every conversation was dominated by what have I got? What am I doing? Oh, you know, isn't the economy terrible? There was just no peace in those people. And yet for Christians, because we believe in a God who is in control of everything, he is completely sustaining all things, and then also because we believe that he's a good God to his people, in all circumstances, 
Christians can have peace. Now, I've, I've just talked about this, the, 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 the people that I used to rub shoulders with. There's another group of people that I was very fortunate and blessed to have counted as brothers and sisters. Now, I worked for OMF for a while, and you know, it, it was that three or four years ago, every year they would do like an annual conference for OMFers. And you know, so OMFers from all over UK would come to this big conference, uh, we'd hear the Bible preached, and we'd be there to encourage one another. It was brilliant. And what I realized was that almost everyone I spoke to was a legend in missions in one way or another. You know, like one guy speaking, I'd be speaking to all of a sudden, like 20 minutes into the conversation, I'd finally work out that they were like one of the first missionaries into Mongolia or something. Or I'd be talking to somebody and sort of, you know, again, 20 odd minutes in, I'd work out that actually they were interned in China by the Japanese um, you know, for, for gospel's sake. And I've read about this person in all the sort of documents that we've, we've, we've given. And yet, to look at them, you, you have no idea that that's who they are. You know, all of them are there busy serving other people. All of them are busy um, just helping others to either understand the Bible better or just giving them a cup of tea. That's incredible. You know, these legends of missions, they're, they're not just kind of sitting back and waiting for other people to serve them. No, they're there serving others. So as we think about these three things then, as we think about how being a Christian is being a saint, one who is in Christ, one who is in London, one who is in London City Presbyterian Church. And we think about how being a Christian is to be a servant to others and to serve like Christ. And as we think about the grace and the peace that we have received from God so that we can do these things, I wonder which one of these do you particularly struggle with? You know, maybe... You're really struggling with the idea of being separated from the world. You know, maybe for whatever reason, your habits and your life is filled with, and your desires are just filled with the desires of the world. Then maybe we need to rethink who we are as Christians and just remember again that no, no, we are not of this world. We are saints in this world. But then again, maybe you struggle to remember that you are a located Christian, that you're supposed to be living this out. Maybe you need to be thinking through how that works. Maybe you struggle to serve because for whatever reason you are proud and you're arrogant. Maybe today is day to rethink that and remember that you are a servant to other Christians and you are to serve like Christ. If Christ himself who died for your sins, if he if you say that he is Lord, then as he comes to serve, you need to come and serve. But maybe you just really struggle to remember that we are recipients of grace and peace. Maybe your days are filled with anxiety. 
Maybe your days are filled with this unspeakable horror that you just cannot explain even. It's there in the background the whole time. Then remember that we have a good God who has already shown grace to us so that we may have peace with him, with one another, and in ourselves. So I'm just going to give you 10 seconds to think how this might apply to you, and then we're going to pray.